This morning I want to speak with you out of the gospel, or rather out of the book of Romans. Uh, In specific, the very first chapter of the book of Romans, I want to read uh, a portion to you today. As texts of the Bible go, this one is about as challenging as any of I've ever read. It's not a text that you hear read a lot in church for that very reason, I think. It's because it's disturbing, it's challenging, it pushes all of us in one way or another. But I want to invite us to listen to the Word of God as it comes to us as I read just some excerpts from uh, uh, this chapter of the Bible. Paul the Apostle is speaking. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. And then further along in verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. For the degrading of their bodies with one another, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. And even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. And in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. And Paul is speaking here about the society of his time in uh, Toto. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, And malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. This is actually the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we pray for the capacity to understand what you're saying to us and to take in the mystery that even in your hard words of challenge to us, there is a tender heart of love moving toward us. So I pray, move by your spirit in my words now to help us understand 
the import of this teaching. For we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you are just joining us today, I began in my last message a very challenging conversation about what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus Christ and to be the church in a world where increasingly uh, gay and lesbian persons, same-sex marriages, uh, folks like Caitlyn Jenner are part of our visible national landscape and our families and our churches. I, I said to you at that time that this is a particularly challenging uh, dimension of life for us. It has been the third rail in American life, certainly in American church life, causing massive division everywhere this issue gets talked about. And, and I've come to believe that, that the reason for this division is because the typical approach to resolving uh, what the Bible says on this subject and what the Bible says about the love of God and, and his a heart for people, that the typical approach to resolving this has led people to make a choice. Either they feel they must abandon the authority of the Bible, the, the kind of words we've just read, on the one hand, just write those off as somehow from another era, or from Paul at a very bad moment uh, in his life, at a cranky moment, or else they need, on the other hand, they feel to, to dismiss and stop really loving, in more than just words, uh, to stop really loving gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender persons. It seems like this is the choice that we're being presented with. And I have come to believe that that's a false choice. It's an unacceptable choice, given the full counsel of God's word. I believe there is a third way we can find together. I believe there is a gracious evangelicalism that holds on to the word of God and holds on as fiercely to the people that God cherishes, to the people who need God and are seeking God like all of us. And so I want to reflect with you uh, more on this subject and urge you, in fact, challenge you as I've been challenged myself to hold on to God and to hold on to those around you fiercely as we seek to find that third way together. Next week, I'm going to come back to uh, the basic discipleship principles of radical love and self-denial that I touched on in my first message. And I'm going to flesh out some more of the specific practices that I think we need to, 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 to find our way into more fully together if we are to be the kind of redemptive community and force for mission in the world that Jesus calls us to be. Today, I just want to invite you to join me on a walk. I want to take a walk with you down what some have called the Roman road. My goal in this particular conversation is to try and expand our understanding of the context in which the church arose, to help us understand the sexual practices of the world in which the church first grew up, how the early Christians dealt with their world and the choices being presented in it. And then I want to close out by trying to renew our vision of the gospel itself, of the glorious message of God's grace and truth that still is, I think, the church's greatest hope and its most profound, life-giving, 
uh, gift to this world. In his book, uh, Fellowship of Difference, uh, Professor Scott McKnight of Northern Baptist Seminary uh, describes an eye-opening walk that he once took down an actual Roman road through the city of Pompeii. How many of you have been to Pompeii, I wonder? A few of us along the way. You will know that in the year 79 AD, a massive volcano blew its top and buried Pompeii completely. In doing so, uh, the city of Pompeii was, was preserved uh, in its entirety. I mean, almost without anything lost. It, it, it's a uh, snapshot of what life in first century Roman society looked like. And, and McKnight describes his experience of, of visiting around the city, and I quote him, it's not an exaggeration to say that the city was swamped with erotic images. I won't go into the lurid details on this, but suffice it to say that what we would consider explicit porn was everywhere in the city. It was just all over. Every surface almost that you could see were were advertisements for um, explicit, uh, intimate sexual encounters. The sexual reality across the empire of which Pompeii was a typical example, writes McKnight, was a total lack of sexual inhibition. This society was completely uninhibited in terms of sexual self-expression. McKnight goes on to explain that the normal order of things in that time was for two levels of engagement sexually. You would have, especially if you were a man, you'd have a procreational sex life with your wife, and most everybody would find a spouse, and, and then you would have a recreational sex life with other people. And these things would happen, you know, in a given week. This, this would be a common experience for most people, uh, men and women alike, uh, especially men. Those other people with whom you would have this recreational engagement were, were often uh, slave girls. In fact, when you read about slaves uh, uh, in, in the Bible or you hear about slaves around the world today in human trafficking... That is very frequently what they're being used for, recreational pleasure for somebody. Uh, And also, young boys were were very frequently uh, used as objects for the gratification of of men uh, in Roman society. Um, Pederasty, the practice of sex with children, was a commonly accepted practice in the first century. Lesbianism was, was... increasingly well-known in the culture of that time, nowhere near as common, however, as recreational same-sex liaisons between men, many of whom were still married to women um, and, and just simply expressing themselves in a different way outside of the bond of marriage. And relations with paid sex workers was such an industry... <laughs> was was such a a long-held practice that Rome's leading order, Cicero, said this about about the practice. Uh, He scoffed at those who would even think of of opposing the use of prostitutes. Uh, He asked, when was such a thing not done? Uh, So ingrained in Roman and before that Greek society was the practice of prostitution. Now, are you getting this picture? 
Are you sort of beginning to see it? Um, Bangkok and Vegas have nothing on Rome in terms of the practices of the time. Um, and, and this was the world in which the church was born. This was the, this was the world, this was the norm in which uh, Christians went about and lived their daily lives. And, and this was the world into which God introduced through the church a more constrained understanding of how sexuality should be used. Now, whatever your personal sexual ethics are, and I know that anytime I'm speaking to a room, there's a, a whole bunch of points of view present. Um, whatever your personal views are, or your view of our times and the issues at stake in the public debate, uh, I think it's helpful at least to know, at least understand, the belief system out of which people like the Apostle Paul um, said what they did and did what they did. Uh, and I think it also, if you understand this belief system, it will help you to, to, to appreciate why um, it could be unfair, actually, to, to, to label as haters all Christians uh, who raise questions about uh, sexual mores of various kinds today because things didn't end well for Rome. They did not end well for Rome as, as all boundaries got lost, not just in the field of sex, but in the field of justice, in care for their, their uh, part of the environment, in, in a variety of areas. As boundaries got lost, the, the culture and society, the civilization that had been Rome, perished. Now, first century, Christian sexual ethics were born primarily out of the vision of human flourishing described in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. In other words, first century Christian ethics did not take their cues from all of the Old Testament. They, they really keyed in on the first two chapters of the Bible and also the supporting teaching of the Ten Commandments and some of what Jesus specifically said about sexuality. The early Christians believed in the distinctiveness of maleness and femaleness, and they felt felt that in this, um, in this polarity, there was a dynamic balance of personhood that in some mysterious way reflected the character, the nature, the dynamic interoperability of the persons of the Holy Trinity. And I just quote Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. Secondly, the early Christians believed that God had designed men and women for pairing with one another, that they were suitable helpmates, that, that there was a purposefulness in the, in the connection between men and women that would mutually be beneficial to them. And they held that, that the very geometry of the physical body was indicative of the intended suitable fit. You didn't have to think too much about that to see that that was sort of how things were meant to, to, to work in their natural state, and that, that this also enabled men and women to produce uh, children together, foster the expansion of family and of community, which again, Genesis 1 and 2, and the early Christians believed, was a reflection of God's nature, multiplying, flourishing, fruitfulness. This was part of his plan for the creation. 
But Christians also believed that God's plan A was that men and women joined together as permanent partners. Uh, In fact, the Bible says three different places. For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. They become one flesh. And that in the joining together in sexual relationships, there's a union which, if we then tear the relationship apart, tears the personality and personhood of God's people. And so they felt that sex belonged within this covenant, uh, within this deep covenant shared between men and women, and that having intercourse in other contexts through premarital or extramarital or same-sex relations was, was unnatural. That was the word they used for it, meaning it was against sort of the nature of things as God had first set it up. And, and the early Christians felt, as many still do, that, that if we intentionally or maybe even unintentionally, live against the grain of God's design for human flourishing, we don't flourish as much and may actually unintentionally injure ourselves profoundly over the course of time. Now, the the early church had seen that happen. Uh, They had read their Bible. They, They knew that, biblically speaking, the whole, this whole natural order that that God sets up at the beginning is a fleeting phenomenon, right? They, they, they know that that very first helpmate relationship, the very first marriage, Adam and Eve, right? It goes south almost immediately. It turns into a he said, she said fight, right? They're blaming each other and, and pointing at each other uh, and, and declaring they've got no responsibility for the breakdown of the whole arrangement. Within a, a few minutes, practically, their kids are at each other's throats, Right? One of, the, one of their sons doesn't just say, I'm going to kill you. He kills his brother. He actually murders his brother in cold blood. And, and, and then the Old Testament narratives go on. They give us uh, sometimes pictures of what looks like fairly healthy marriage and family life. Uh, you see great friendships there. Uh, they seem in line with the ethics we read about in the vision of life in Genesis 1 and 2. But the history of Israel, I mean, let's be honest. It's, it's crazy what we see there. It's predominantly a story of, of fractured families and, and, and of kind of distorted sexuality and of all kinds of struggles. Um, it often reads kind of like a, a sitcom, a reality show, one of today's dramas. I mean, we see ourselves all over the pages of the Old Testament. There are tales of polygamy and incest and prostitutes and concubines and rapes and adultery galore. And that's just within the, the circle of God's chosen people. That's their life, right? Forget talking about what's happening in the pagan societies with child sacrifice and, and, and the rest. So, so this, is, this is the way life is, okay? This isn't a surprise. This is the way life is after Genesis 1 and 2, the Bible suggests. But the early Christians, they, they were seized with a dream that there could be an even healthier world. It, it was implanted in them by the vision of Jesus himself as he spoke of the kingdom of God. They believed that Jesus had been, in a sense, the second Adam, the, the second Adam figure. He had come back to create a do-over, in a sense, 
And, and they believed that the church was, in a sense, the second Eve. It was the bride of Christ. How many of you ever heard that term, the bride of Christ, describing the church? Yeah. So, so the Christians believed that God was starting a new process. A process by which all of the cascading effects and breakdown occasioned by the initial fall from grace were going to be reversed. And Eden, in a sense, would be restored one day. And that restoration gets described at the very end of the Bible in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. And they believed that one day Christ was going to return to complete the restoration process. And there would be no more uh, fighting and and, and dying and, 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 and disconsolation and pain as God would bring about a new shalom, a new peace. In the meantime, in between that beginning and that end, the, the church realized it had a job to do. The job of the bride was to prepare herself. This is how the Christians looked at it. The job of the bride was to prepare herself to live and love for Christ alone. And so even though the Roman culture around them was licentious in all kinds of, in every possible conceivable way, even while the Roman government was endorsing all kinds of practices of, uh, of healthy and unhealthy kinds, even though the authorities did actually persecute the church severely, and even though leaders like Paul clearly felt like the surrounding society was in serious trouble. That's what Romans 1 is all about. Even though this was all true, the major focus, hear me out on this, this is critical, this is for us, the major focus of the bride of Christ was not on condemning the world. It was not. It was on trying to develop in itself the character and the conduct appropriate to its role as the bride of Christ. So, in other words, all of these exhortations uh, that we hear in other parts of the Bible coming from the lips of the Apostle Paul about sex are not delivered on the steps of the Roman courthouse. They are not spat out at passers-by on their way down to the, to the Pompeii bathhouses or, or brothels. When Paul says, and I quote, flee from sexual immorality, or when he says, anyone among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, it's to the church he's talking. It's, it's to the followers of Jesus Christ, the ones who have signed up to be a Jesus person that he's talking because he says these are improper behaviors for God's holy, meaning set-apart people. And the fact... That, that Paul has to keep reminding the church about um, their sexual practices, uh, to keep working on this stuff. And he does this a lot, by the way. Um, it, it seems very clear evidence. There are a lot of Christians that he knows who just aren't yet really living into God's plan A. They're just not yet really doing that whole Genesis 1 and 2 thing. And Paul's just aware this is a continuing dynamic. And you know what? It's still that way. You know, it's just, it, it's, every pastor knows, and most of us know, it, it's still that way. 
According to um, recent studies, an estimated 50% of the men who are attending church today have been into porn this past week. 50%. Focus on the family study found that some 47% of, uh, of women and men surveyed said, you know, pornography is a problem in our household. Uh, and these are Christian households ostensibly being interviewed. Uh, how many others of us have looked at somebody going by this past week and indulged a fantasy about them that was not of the purest kind? And, and how many of us are aware that, that Jesus said, I tell you that anyone who looks at another person lustfully has already committed adultery with that person in his heart. How many of us have physical adultery in our past? Who of us is in an affair right now or covering for a friend who is in such an affair? How many of us have have been what the Bible calls an old-fashioned word, fornicators? That means we had a really promiscuous life as we were coming up. And if if people dragged out the list of those encounters we had along the way, and if we could see with God's lenses uh, what that did as a deli slicer on our soul and that of the people we were in connection with, we would shudder, we would be humiliated. I know I would. Uh, I've had my own story growing up. Um, How many of us are shacking up with somebody uh, right now? Uh, How many of us have been divorced or are remarried to somebody who's divorced, who was divorced. Uh, somebody wrote me this past week. Uh, they said, I, I hope you will tell them how abominable homosexuality is. And I wanted to write back, I hope you've read the stern and hard words God says about so many behaviors that he knows he believes don't lead to our flourishing. I mean, do we understand that? As we judge, as we condemn our LGBT friends in this world, do we know what God says? And this is just in the sex and marriage category. I mean, listen to the, how the Apostle Paul characterizes people who are candidates for God's wrath. Let me read it again. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy. Murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, love, or mercy. Look hard at that list. Let's look hard for ourselves at that list. As challenging as that is. Do you know how the Bible defines greed? I know how I define it. It's people who have more stuff than I have and want it more badly, a little bit more badly. That's how I tend to define greed. It's not how the Bible defines it. The prophets of the Old Testament uh, define greed as keeping for yourself more than you really need when those around you have grinding needs. Are you greedy? I am. I'm an unrepentant, greedy person. How about envy? 
You ever covet somebody's car? You ever covet somebody's body? Do you ever envy somebody's talents or fame or other stuff? In other words, do you ever watch advertising? (laughs) Do you ever open those magazines that come in such massive quantities into our homes? How about murder or malice? Jesus said, you've heard it said, anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says, you fool, raka, a term of condemnation is what he used, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Are you and I guilty of any kind of deceit? Another one of the categories Paul raises. Are we guilty of that? Do we ever spin? Do we ever tell little lies? Do we ever cover things up? Do we ever gossip? Do you ever gossip? Do you ever talk about somebody behind their back? Do we ever slander somebody, kind of run them down so that other people think ill of them uh, in conversation? Uh, Would anybody who knows us well say that we can be sort of arrogant or boastful at times? Are any of us disobeying or dishonoring our parents? Are we exercising mercy, practical mercy, to, to, to those who need it? to to the prisoner and the stranger and the poor, the way we might be doing because Jesus said, and I quote, truly I tell you whatever you did not do for one of these, the least of, of my brothers and sisters, you did not for me. And then they, those who did not do it, will go away to eternal punishment. Aren't you glad you came to church today? I know this sounds unbelievably heavy and overbearing. I know it especially because when I read these words to my wife, she said, lighten up. (laughs) This is really heavy stuff we're thinking about here. So what's my point? Why am I doing it? You know me. Most of you know me. You know I'm not a a kind of a bang-you-on-the-head kind of guy. What's my point here? Why am I doing this? Well, let me try and tie it all together and let you go and hope you're not so discouraged that you'll refuse to come back next week when I really wrap this up in, I think, a hopeful and creative way. The creative way forward that I am trying to chart, this, this third way that I have been talking about as we grapple with issues like same-sex attraction and probably a whole range of other moral issues in our time, this third way does not involve sort of throwing away the Bible. It it, it does not involve um, minimizing or unthinkingly revising uh, what the Bible has to say uh, about sin. Uh, But it, it it better involve the humble recognition that we're in this stuff together. Okay, if, if we're going to say any, dare to say anything about it, other people's lives, we better understand that we too are fallen creatures. That, that, and that God doesn't really rank this stuff, even though we do. You know, <laughs> what are the bad sins? The stuff other folks are doing. You know, that's, that's not how God looks at it. We are living in an immensely fallen world. Everything from our biology to our environment to our 
uh, psychology, our relationship with God, our perception of self is not what it was, it's not what it could be, it's not what it one day will be by God's grace. We are, as the uh, old reformers John Calvin and Martin Luther used to say, we're suffering, all of us, from what's called total depravity. An old-fashioned, out-of-fashion term. We're, we're suffering from this fundamental brokenness that, 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 that disables us in many ways from finding the full life of flourishing God uh, intends. And none of us is going to be totally saved from this stuff in our lifetime. Not until we stand in glory will, will all of this stuff that needs cleaning up in our lives be finally cleaned up. Now, I know it's because many of us in the evangelical church so love the vision of life painted in Genesis 1 and 2. We think it's so good for everybody if we could live by this. I know that's, that's the driving force for, I guess, most people who are zealously opposing uh, same-sex marriage and, and, and the other uh, sexual issues of our time. Um, it's, I know it's, it's puzzling to some others in the community why we don't see the movement from a lifestyle of promiscuity into one of covenantal relationship in more positive terms. And that's, that's a challenging thought to sit with. But, but I just cannot help but wonder if it would not be a better use of our energies right now. I can't help but think it might not be a closer hewing to the pattern of the early church and a stronger strategy for actually increasing the church's transforming influence and its voice in our needy world in days to come if we chose to not focus so much on sorting out the sins of the gay and lesbian community and we focused a lot more on facing the gravity of our depravity instead. I think that that's needed. Now, maybe this message isn't for you, okay? It's possible that, that all of what I've been saying, it, it doesn't apply to you. It might be that when Christ returns, he's going to pull you out of the crowd. And he's going to say, beaming, you're what I had in mind. Your life, that's what was possible for humanity. You know, the way you, you manage your character, your thoughts, your resources, your household. It's perfect. Well done. No wonder so many people flocked to me, Jesus will say, because they saw your witness. What great salt and light you were. Maybe, maybe everything I'm saying is not for you because that's what Jesus would say about you. I, I suspect a lot of us are... A, a bit more like the nominal Christians or the half-committed disciples that the apostle was trying to reach in his letters. You know, we're, we're virtuous in certain ways and at certain times. We are. You know, we could be worse. We've been worse <laughs> at moments of our lives. Um, we, 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 but the reality is most of us, we are avowed, practicing, unrepentant sinners in one way or another. Right? We feel good doing stuff that God says is bad. You know, just think of, I think of the last time I really let go with a righteous attack on somebody. It felt good doing something that God would say 
may not be so good. We've got rationalizations, all of us. I mean, sophisticated ones for, for avoiding letting the Holy Spirit into our ears, into our lives to change us in the way that he wants to change us. And if we can't even see that, it might be because the depravity goes so deep, it's distorted our moral vision. We can't even see ourselves correctly any longer. So here's the core. Here's the core of the gospel message that the early church did get. And I think we need to recover in our time in deeper measure. It's what the old time evangelists used to call the Roman road because this message comes right out of the book of Romans itself. The apostle Paul says, we are all under the power of sin. Say that with me. We are all under the power of sin. It's the first confession anybody does when they walk into a recovery meeting. I'm powerless. I'm under the power of sin in ways that I can see and I don't even see. And by the staggering standards of the holiness and the goodness and the beauty and the love and the joy of God, there is no one righteous, Paul says. Not even one person, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin, the result of this sin, if we're left to our own ingenuity, our own righteousness, the wages of this is death. Spiritual death. But, but, this is the good news. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift God wants us to have. The unmerited favor he wants to offer to us. The God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. The grace God wants to give us in Jesus Christ. It is, is an eternal quality of life. A larger kind of flourishing in this world and beyond this world, then perhaps we even have caught a vision of yet. God has the power to bring that forth in your life, in the life of our loved ones, in the life of the church and the world, if we'll open ourselves to him. And so here's my encouragement. Hang on to him and hang on to each other, all of us of every kind, hang on. And how we truly walk with Christ and how we truly walk with one another into that larger life is what we're going to explore when we gather again next week. Would you pray with me? Lord, I just pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'll take something of what I've said, something that could be insight-producing, life-enhancing, and, and work it deep into the soil of our lives. Help grow up in us all of the very fruit of your spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, generosity, self-control, courage, humility, justice. Grow it all up in us, Lord, that we might find together, as imperfect as we are, that greater life for which you sent Jesus to be our Savior. We pray in his name. And all God's people said.
Amen.